increment 183 today of Hebrews 2020. We see Jesus. Today we're going to be considering, well, a title, The Tithes the Thing. The Tithes the Thing. The thing that we're focusing in on is what the shepherding teacher or the teaching shepherd that wrote Hebrews focuses in in this next segment, Hebrews 7, 4 to 10. The tithe, that's the thing. We want you to remember that we are still collecting toys in our Salvation Army Treasures for Children campaign. This isn't just an act of charity where we're doling out presents. This is a an act of love for the community, recognizing that we are, in fact, part of the community, part of the family of people in New Kensington. So we're collecting these toys for children in the community that just might not have had an opportunity to have Christmas presents like some other kids. So we're going to still collect these for about one more week. And you can call the office at 724-335-3550 to drop off. So today we're continuing our study of Hebrews chapter 7, and we'll open with prayer. Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for another opportunity to gaze, not just glance, but gaze into the scriptures which James calls the perfect law of liberty and we ask that you will allow us through the Holy Spirit to indeed see Jesus and to see the one who is crowned with glory and honor so that we may look away from all other things and all over other people and all other circumstances and situations unto the great king. We ask it in his name. Amen. In Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet, a famous play, incidentally, I know people look for movies to watch that are appropriate to watch, and I highly recommend Mel Gibson's version of Hamlet. And he really put some life into that wonderful play. But in Act 2, Scene 2 of Hamlet, Shakespeare puts an alliterative line in the mouth of Hamlet. As you know, Hamlet is very troubled because his wife and her lover conspired to kill Hamlet's father. And so he decided he was going to catch them, as it were, catch them out and reveal their guilt by doing a play called The Mousetrap. And so, in Shakespeare's own use of alliteration, he has Hamlet say, The play's the thing, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. And the way it's played in the movie is just quite brilliant because you see the play unfold, you see the actors committing an act of homicide that was just like the act that killed Hamlet's father, and Hamlet keeps looking over at the king and his mother and seeing the look of horror come over them. And so 
that line really struck me today just as I was thinking of this passage. The play's the thing, said Hamlet, wherein I'll catch the conscience of the king. In our study today, Hebrews, the tithe, T-I-T-H-E, the tithe's the thing, wherein the PT shows the superiority of the king. The king Melchizedek, who is a prefiguration of the King of Kings, our Lord Jesus Christ, and our great archpriest. To interpret this next passage properly and to see the tithe specifically in its proper context, it might be profitable to take it all in one bite first and then proceed with a narrow focus on the tithe from, from Abraham paid to Melchizedek. Hebrews 7, 4 through 10, my translation, so far, observe how great this one, that is Melchizedek, is, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth, hodecatane is the way it is in the scripture, the Greek text, you'll see it in print, of the spoils of war. Verse 5, indeed the sons of Levi who receive the priestly office, have a commandment in the Torah, the law, to collect a tithe from the people, that is, from their brothers, even though these also have come out of Abraham's loins. But one who did not descend from this priestly lineage received tithes from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now, beyond all dispute, the inferior in status is blessed by the superior. Please note that because we're going to make some, well, some tweaks to that verse to make it more exact to the purpose of the author. Verse 7, now beyond all dispute, the inferior in status is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who die... Speaking of the Levite, the Levitical priests, men who die receive tithes. But in the other case, that is Melchizedek as a prefiguration of Jesus, the Son of God, in his case it is testified merely that he lives. One might even say, says verse 9, that through Abraham... Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes because he was still in his forefather's loins when Melchizedek met him. Very common way of saying he would eventually descend from Abraham by saying he was in Abraham's loins. Now, in his exegesis of Genesis fourteen seventeen through 20, the PT selects a number of things for consideration. We've already looked at those a couple times. The item on the top of the heap in an ascending order of rhetorical force, and that's what he's doing. He's building up through a rhetorical argument more and more force to show the superiority of Jesus Christ as great archpriest. And the item on the top of the heap in an ascending order of rhetorical force, is the act of Abraham toward Melchizedek, by which the patriarch gave a tithe 
which is actually, in this case, the top of the heap, literally, of the spoils of the war of the kings in which God gave Abraham a decisive victory. Of all these things, the tithe's the thing that the PT plays on in order to reveal that Melchizedek's priesthood was of a superior order to that of the Levitical priesthood. So it's not even the blessing that's the thing. It's true that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And mention is made of this first in connection with their meeting. In other words, the blessing is mentioned first in Hebrews 7.1. Later in Hebrews 7.6-7, it says this, and I'm repeating. But the one who did not descend from this priestly lineage received tithes from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now beyond all dispute, the inferior in status is blessed by the superior. Now we're going to deal with, have a little dialectic about this in a moment, but we have what's known here as a chiastic structure, which generally can be represented in the A, B, B, A representation. I call it the Abba configuration. But in this chiastic structure of Hebrews 7, 1 to 6, the blessing is first. The blessing is first in its mention. The tithe is second, but the tithe is also third. And so really the central part of this chiasmos, the X ring as it were, is what's really being emphasized. Not the outside and the, the outside brackets, but what's in the heart, in the center. The tithe is in the center. So the last mention is of blessing. This is the way it is structured. Structure is very important in biblical writers. I haven't lived long enough to do a good enough study about the structure of all the biblical documents, but it's fascinating. So in the chiastic structure, chiastic simply comes from the Greek letter chi, which looks sort of like an X to us in English. The chiastic structure of Hebrews 7, 1 to 6, again, the blessing is first, then the tithe, then the tithe, then the blessing. The tithe occupies the center of this chiasmos, and therefore it's the thing that he's mentioning that is having most significance. The tithe occupies the center. The emphasis falls on the central thing. Even as in rhetoric, the emphasis falls on the intermediary member, the middle term, as we're going to find out. And, of course, there's a great emphasis on the mediator in Hebrews. The tithe occupies the center of the chiasmos. The emphasis falls on the central thing, the tithe. So the tithe, the thing, the blessing of Abraham by Melchizedek is of secondary importance. Both of these things happened in the Genesis 14, 17 to 20 account. And the writer picks up on these details like most of us would probably bypass them. Now, in Hebrews 7, 7, once again, it says, and we dealt with this before, so I want you to pick up on it again. In Hebrews 7, 7, it says, Now, beyond all dispute, 
without a question, the inferior in status is blessed by the superior. In other words, the inferior receives the blessing and the superior gives the blessing. Now, we considered this before. It seems like at first reading, it's a general principle. So we would ask a question for intelligence. Is that a, is this a general principle that the blesser is greater than the blessee? And at first glance, I said, yeah, that's true. But now we're going to ask a question for reflection. Onset, is that really so? So we considered this before to be a general principle, a principle that applies across the board, as if Hebrews 7, 7 means it is always the case that the lesser is blessed by the greater. But at this point, we have to ask a question for reflection. Is that really so? Is it really invariably and always so that the lesser is blessed by the greater? Well, a short search of the scriptures proves this to be actually untrue. We find instances of subjects blessing their kings. In 2 Samuel 14.22, in 1 Samuel, or 1 Kings rather, 147, also known as Three Reigns, and also Three Reigns 866. Coaster notes this in his commentary. And if it's always the case that the blesser is greater than the blessee, then how would the scripture be legitimate which says, bless the Lord, O my soul? Who's greater, the Lord or my soul that blesses the Lord? In Psalm 103.22, Septuagint 102.22. Even beyond this, the seminal epistle of Paul, which is Ephesians, at least in my view, begins with a blessing addressed by Paul the Apostle to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yolagetos, meaning blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who's writing that? Paul. Who's the blesser? Paul. Who's the blessee? God. Who's greater? God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ or Paul? The answer is obvious. The same blessing, in fact, is given in 1 Peter 1.3, precisely, eulogetos, or blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it is not irrevocably and invariably true that the blesser is greater than the blessee. So it's true, once again, that eulogetos is an adjective and describes the intrinsic character of God in the Ephesians 1-3 passage, and that eulogeo, as you'll see in print, E-U-L-O-G-E, long O, eulogeo is a verb, not an adjective, in Hebrews 7-1, and 7-7. And it describes the act of Melchizedek upon Abraham. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. But that very act does not in itself prove the maxim that the greater always blesses the lesser. However, we're seeing that the writer is after what's happening in this case. Because Melchizedek received a tithe of the best 
or the top of the heap of the plunder of the desert war of the kings from Abraham, that's what indicated his greater dignity. So we would have to translate this, in this case, in this specific case with Melchizedek and Abraham, the blesser, Melchizedek, is greater than the blessee, Abraham. So I would actually alter the translation. You have to, to give it the right sense, according to Nehemiah 8.8. But let me just back up and run over this again. Beyond this, it's true, once again, eulogeo is used. Nevertheless, it's evident that God the Father is worthy to be blessed or highly spoken of by lesser beings, as he is along with the Lamb in Revelation 5.13 and 7.12. So again, I'm just giving more illustrations of the fact that the lesser can bless the superior, the superior being God and the Lamb, the blessees or those who are blessing God and the Lamb are all of creation, obviously lesser than God and the Lamb. So in answer to our question for reflection, is it always so that the lesser is blessed by the greater? The answer is no. See how we answer a question for reflection. After further reflection, we see that Hebrews 7, 7 is not a general motto or a general uh, generalization a general principle. Consequently, the interpretation and thus the translation of Hebrews 7.7 must go like this. Now, beyond all dispute, notice how he hammers this argument down. In this case, in this case only, the inferior in status is blessed by the superior. Abraham is therefore lesser than Melchizedek in terms of greatness, rank, dignity, and authority. And of course, the argument then goes almost into a playful phase of hyperbole, where if that argument alone was given, it wouldn't have as much punch. Well, you see, now we see Levi still in Abraham's loins, paying tithes to Melchizedek. Therefore, we see a recognition by Levi in Abraham's loins of a still greater priest and a greater priesthood. And of course, as we've seen, Melchizedek is merely a lens of prefiguration through which we see an even greater and more extraordinarily dignified high priest, even our Lord Jesus Christ. And so indeed, that's the thing here. It's the tithe that reveals the greatness of the priest king, Melchizedek, and not the blessing. Because of the tithe paid voluntarily and spontaneously by Abraham, he didn't have to give it thought. He didn't have to have a consultation with a committee. He simply spontaneously and voluntarily, this patriarch, as Abraham was, gave to this Melchizedek the priest, the one who blessed him in that instance, a tithe. And so in that case, Melchizedek blessing Abraham means that the blesser, Melchizedek, is greater than the blessee, the recipient of the blessing. Now we have to deal with the change in wording of Genesis 14.20 by the PT. 
There's one reading in the Septuagint translation. There's another slight emendation in the Hebrews text. In the LXX, or the Septuagint translation, the writer uses the word a tenth of all, panton. But in Hebrews 7.4, the writer doesn't use the word a tenth of all, but a tenth of the top of the heap. It's acrothinion in Hebrews 7.4, and it has to do specifically with spoils of war. So we know by compiling or by conflating Hebrews 7.4 with Genesis 14.20, the last thing he says in that little vignette about Abraham and Melchizedek is that Melchizedek was tithed to by Abraham. Now, let's back up again a little bit. In Genesis 14.20, the teaching shepherd may well be writing to an audience of Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews in Hebrews 7.4. In Hebrews 7.4, he kind of quotes Genesis 14.20, the last thing said in that episode. The teaching shepherd may well be writing to an audience of Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews, much like Stephen, as we've seen before. They would have been familiar with the military tithe, or tenth, decatain, of the, literally, the top of the heap. Acrothinion is the word he uses in Hebrews 7, 4. You'll see it in print. Of the spoils of war. We have writings of classical Greek writers, as well as military classical Greek writers, Xenophon, Pindar, Aeschylus, Herodotus, Thucydides, Plutarch, and others. We find that word acrothinion, or acrothin, yeah, acrothinion, acrothinion, used as a tithe or as a giving of the top of the heap of the plunder of a war. So in the writings, it's, li it's understood literally to be the top of the heap of the spoils of war. And they were taken as an offering, listen carefully to this, to the gods in these Greek texts, as in Herodotus. Liddell Scott give us an example in the Greek writer Herodotus where the spoils of war were offered to the gods or to a particular deity. Now, at first glance, this might lend credence to the notion that Melchizedek should be considered a divine figure or a deity. However, even though the Hebrews author brings in the Hellenistic notion or the Greek notion of the tithe, he is not necessarily applying deity to Melchizedek, but rather a special divinely given Dignity. Let me say that again, because I think that's central to the argument here. The PT is not necessarily applying deity to Melchizedek, but rather a special divinely given dignity. If Abraham had intended the tithe for a deity... It would have been for the Most High God, El Elyon, whom Melchizedek served 
as priest and not to Melchizedek as the Most High God. On top of this, the writer moves without delay to the Jewish law notion or the gnomic notion of tithe to make his point. At the bottom line, the writer is arguing that in this very special case, it is very clear that Melchizedek, the blesser, is superior to Abraham, the blessee. It's not the blessing that reveals this, it's the tithe that's the thing. This being firmly established, the writer can go on to make the argument in a more playful way, and he does that. He plays a little bit on, in fact, he plays on the word tithe because he uses it in the military sense under the Hellenistic view, then he moves into the Jewish sense of the tithe that was commanded to be offered to the Levitical priesthood. And in this same playful way, in using figures of speech, he shows that, in fact, one could even say, he says, and we can almost see a little bit of laughter behind this, that Levi, who represents the Levitical priesthood, is outranked by Melchizedek because, seminally speaking, he was in, Levi was in Abraham's loins when Abraham tithed to the greater Melchizedek. The writing pastor is careful not to let the whole argument ride on this rather hyperbolic move, however. So taken together, the argument turns lethal to any accusation that the readers are left without the covering of an archpriest. Not only do they have an archpriest, they have one greater than Aaron, greater than Levi, greater than Caiaphas, greater than all the Levitical priests over all the course of Israel's history. Now, the PT uses two nuances of the term tithe in Hebrews 7. And this becomes a wordplay device that he uses later on because, in fact, very soon in the writing, he uses two nuances of the term diatheke, translated both testament and covenant. So tithe he makes to be the top of the heap of the plunder of the spoils of war and then the tithe commanded by the law to be given to Levitical priests. Two senses or nuances of the word. Later on he's going to use the word diatheke which is a word for covenant in two senses. One as kind of like a will and testament. The other covenant. And he's going to use this play on two nuances of the word to further his argument and to further our attentiveness on the Lord Jesus Christ as the mediator of a better covenant than the one given at Sinai in which there was a command to pay tithes to Levitical priests. The PT uses, again, two nuances of the term tithe in that word is Decatos, D-E-K-A-T-O-S, Decatos, just as later he will use two meanings of the word diatheke for covenant or contract. Well, this will be coming up soon. And so, I want to say this again. 
This is part of the writer's exegesis of Genesis 14, 18 through 20. And that part of that exegesis comes from the climactic declarative sentence in that short narrative, which simply says, and he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe, a tenth, that is, of everything. That's how the sentence slams shut. The whole episode slams shut right there, bang. And that's the thing. The tithe's the thing. That's what he's pointing out here. It ends, once again, Genesis 14, 20b. Kai edoken auto decaten apo panton. And he, Abraham, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. A tenth of everything. Pantone is used in Genesis, but the writer of Hebrews uses a different word. He does not use pantone. He uses acrothinion, which means the best of the spoils, the top of the heap of plunder from the desert war. This was the culmination of the meeting of Abraham and Melchizedek. It's kind of a climax of the story. The tithe was the climax of the story. And it's the tithe that's the thing that reveals the glory of our great king, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was the culmination of the meeting of Abraham and Melchizedek, the patriarch and the priest, the promise holder, Abraham, and the prefiguration of the fulfillment of the promises, Melchizedek. Let me say that again. Abraham... the promise holder, and Melchizedek, the prefiguration of the fulfillment of the promises. Who's more important, the one who holds the promise or the one who fulfills the promises? And all the promises of God are fulfilled and yea and amen in Jesus Christ typified and prefigured by Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a type. Jesus Christ is the antitype. It's the antitype that determines the type, not vice versa. The antitype is the main, the main thing pointed to here, the main person pointed to here. So we're going to go to Hebrews 7 again. I know I feel like I'm all around the place here, and I, you may think that I'm everywhere, but this madness has a method this method does have a madness however Hebrews 7 observe how great this one Melchizedek is to whom Abraham the patriarch apportioned a tenth of the spoils or gave a tenth of the spoils so not every blesser is greater than the one who is blessed but this one is Melchizedek the priest king is greater than Abraham, the patriarch. The word patriarch is patriarches, and it's a word from the Septuagint that's brought over into the New Testament. In Acts 2.29, for example, it's worth noting also that the Hellenistic Jewish preacher Stephen 
used the term in the plural, patriarches, twice in his swan song sermon before they killed him. Acts 7.8, Acts 7.9. So the word patriarch is used by another Hellenistic Jewish teacher in Hebrews 7.4. Every priest and archpriest in the hereditary line of Abraham through Levi, from Aaron to the archpriest Caiaphas, who was the priest who tore his robes before ordering the crucifixion of Jesus Christ or the death of our Lord, All of these received tithes from the people of Israel through a commandment of the Torah, the law that came through Moses. In their case, men who die kept receiving tithes. In the case of Melchizedek, though, this priest of another order received a tithe that was not commanded by Moses' law. This was, after all, hundreds of years before Moses and before the law-giving at Sinai. Moreover, there's no record of Melchizedek's end of life, and that also has significance, as we've seen. Typical significance, not actual significance. The Bible merely says that he lives. Like the song about Jesus. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. How did I remember that? I haven't sung that since I was about 22 years old. Anyways, he became, and some might say, that's not singing. And you're right, you're correct. The Bible merely says about Melchizedek, he lives. In this description, he was made like the Son of God. He became a type of the anti-type, Jesus. Jesus, the anti-type, determines the type, Melchizedek, and not vice versa. In other words, Jesus was not made like Melchizedek. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. He was made to prefigure him. Christ is the one who was prefigured. He's the anti-type. Now, evidently, Abraham tithed from his own free will when he intuitively recognized the great dignity and authority of Melchizedek. This indicates a free action of grace on Abraham's part, not a response to the letter of the law, which was how people tithed to the Levitical priesthood. So we should probably suspect the quiet involvement of the spirit of grace who is associated with the new covenant. In fact, Hebrews 7.11, the homily, in, in this verse 11, the homily moves seamlessly into the inferiority and relative inefficacy of the law. There, the skillful scribe, that's what I'm calling the PT now, poses this rhetorical question. If then, completion arguably the key concept in Hebrews, teleosis or teleosis, teleosis, if then completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood, there for the first time we have the word Levitical priesthood 
actually staring at us in the face in the Greek text. It's L-E-U-I-T-I-K-E-S, which transliterates basically is to Levitical, and then H, with the hard breathing here, I-E-R-O-S-U-N-E-S. That says Levitical priesthood. So in Hebrews 7.11, here's the rhetorical question. If then completion was reached through the Levitical priesthood, and rhetorically, and it wasn't, for under under it the people received the law, why was there still a need for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? And who is not said to be in the order of Aaron? Good question. In any case, we should note that all these Levitical priests received tithes from the people of Israel through a commandment of the Torah. In their case, men who die receive tithes. In the case of Melchizedek, he received a tithe that was not commanded in Moses' law. And therefore, Abraham tithed evidently from his own spirit-led recognition of Melchizedek's superior dignity. So we should note this refinement of our interpretation. The tithe is the thing here. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek because he intuited Melchizedek's greatness and superior dignity of rank and office. We ultimately cannot say that it is a general principle that the lesser is blessed by the greater because as we have seen again, and it bears repetition, on the scriptural record there are instances of subjects blessing their kings, of lesser blessing the greater. 2 Samuel 14.22, 1 Kings 1.47, 1 Kings 8.66, and as we've seen, Psalm 102.22, Septuagint and Ephesians 1.3 and 1 Peter 1.3. So we should translate Hebrews 7.7 7 like this. Now beyond all dispute in this case, the inferior in status, Abraham, is blessed by the superior in rank and status, Melchizedek. By doing it this way, we see the author's purpose more clearly, which is to highlight the superiority of Melchizedek even over the great patriarch Abraham in terms of rank and dignity. And believe me, Abraham was great in terms of rank and dignity. When God first introduced himself to Moses, he said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God takes his men seriously, even if you don't. And so, it isn't a general principle that the lesser is blessed by the greater, but in this particular case, that's what happened. The great Melchizedek blessed the lesser Abraham. By this we can also see 
that though the earth fortified promise to Abraham that all of humanity would be blessed in his descendant, the greater thing is the descendant himself, who, by an oath fortified acclamation in Psalm 110.4, was pronounced by God to be a priest forever. So here the tithe is the thing that shows the ultimacy of the great king. It's the tithe that indicates the superior status of Melchizedek, which in turn points to the far superior still status of Jesus. Melchizedek did not receive his appointment through a human hereditary line. Nor did he receive it through what the Hebrews author later calls a, a legal command concerning fleshly descent. We're anticipating Hebrews 7.16 here. Here, Hebrews intersects with Paul's arguments, argument in Romans and more forcefully in Galatians of the relative weakness and poverty of the law. In fact, Harold Atridge, citing Walter Gutbrod from the Theological New Testament Dictionary, this very pithy observation was made. As Gutbrod, G-U-T-B-R-O-D, a German scholar, aptly summarizes the difference that is between Romans and Hebrews. For Paul, the law is ineffective because human beings do not do it. For Hebrews, the law is ineffective because only human beings do it. Good way of putting it. In any case, the law is relatively weak and relatively bankrupt compared to the gospel and compared to the new covenant. The old covenant is outworn and has had its day. So among the layers of comparison and contrast, and we're closing now, basically, among the layers of comparison and contrast between the Levitical priesthood prefigured in Abraham and the priesthood of Jesus prefigured by Melchizedek is the contrast of appointments. The Levitical priesthood means priest appointed by the law that is relatively ineffective and the oath of God which is perpetually and totally effective. The oath of God preceded the acclamation of the Melchizedekan priest. So if we were prescient we would see how this argument could morph into a comparison and contrast between the old outworn and the new superior covenants. And we could also maybe see down the road a little bit uh, the offerings presented by the Levitical priests shown to be much less than the once and for all and forever sacrifice of the priest after the order of Melchizedek. A prescient student, or let's just say it this way, someone who had actually read Hebrews, may even divine the direction of the writer. Abraham the patriarch, a representative figure who had the promises, he held the promises deep within his stream of consciousness. He is surely great as the holder of the promises. Melchizedek, who met him on the plain of a king, is greater 
than Abraham, however. Jesus, the antitype of the type or prefiguration in Melchizedek, is greater still than Melchizedek. Now, Levi, who was still in the loins of Abraham, was also great, since he represents the hereditary line of Aaron through which all the priests and archpriests from Moses to Christ were called and commissioned. Levi, in Abraham's loins, paid tithes to the greater priest Melchizedek when Abraham paid the top of the heap or gave the top of the heap of the spoils of war to Melchizedek. Melchizedek was greater than Levi, therefore, and so his priesthood was superior to the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is greater still than even Melchizedek as the antitype is greater than the type. And so, by far, Jesus is greater than Levi, his priesthood far superior to the Levitical. The covenant over which he is mediator and guarantor is superior to the first covenant which is connected with the Levitical order. And the once and for all offering of Jesus the Christ infinitely greater in efficacy and scope than the offerings offered by the Levitical priests in all their long history. So I'll close by saying this. Observe how great Jesus is. We see Jesus. And seeing Jesus, we see how great he is. Now, if you're having church in your home and you've just heard this message, you might want to play How Great Thou Art as a closing song. And we thank you, Father, for this time and how great indeed you are as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us through the Holy Spirit to truly see day by day and with each passing day, more and more clearly, may we see just how great our Savior, Jesus Christ, is, our great God and Savior. And may we be more and more motivated to wait with tiptoe anticipation for his second appearance, his epiphany. And we thank you for this opportunity today in Jesus' name. Amen.